0: Welcome to episode 72 of The People on K Chung, 1630 a.m. I'm Ben White.
1: And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests on this episode are Nicole Kelly and Sarah Lyons. Nicole Kelly is a Los Angeles based writer. She hosts and produces a great podcast called Bitch Face, which, which you should check out wherever you get your podcast because it's a really good one. She's also the programming director at the Women's Center for Creative Work here in Los Angeles.
2: Imagine yourself in this in this context. Imagine yourself if you didn't have to deal with the capitals. Imagine yourself if like white supremacy weren't a thing. Imagine what we might how we might relate to each other in the future. Like those are all things that we're dealing with. I'm referring to the sort of like recent epiphany I've had about like decolonizing. It's very recent. Like it's really it's just I can I can feel that shift in myself. Um, it's intuitive, so it's hard to talk about. I think you know, to like really know what it means to be have been shaped by these things and to know that like this is not who I would have been otherwise.
0: Sarah Lyons is a theater director and maker with an extensive background in feminist theory who works in experimental forms, including new media, participatory work, and adaptation.
3: You know, something that I'm interested in in my work is standing in the sort of boundary between conventional theater practices and participatory or something that feels just more like a talk or a party and like really kind of like standing on that line, drawing some attention there, putting a light on that as a super queer space. You know, it's just liminal. It's another It's another way of talking about liminal space, which is always what we <laughs> come back to.
1: Later in the show, we're going to hear a recent
0: track from T-Sips. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired.
1: And we really want to thank everyone for coming out to the People's Six Year Anniversary Gala uh, this last weekend here in Los Angeles.
0: Yeah, we want to thank uh, Tiger Strikes Asteroid Los Angeles, especially for hosting us, and Liz Nirenberg and Carl Barata, who... Who really helped us get that whole
1: thing together absolutely and we want to thank ignacio gonzon for the projection of images
0: throughout the night and also want to thank our djs who did an excellent job ian james and matt siegel greg curtis alan nakagawa christy roberts berkowitz and joel kayak they were all excellent really great thank you guys thanks to everyone for coming out and celebrating
1: six years of the people
0: yeah here's the six more years
1: right on Nicole Kelly and Sarah Lyons, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for being on Hi. the show.
3: Thank yes.
0: you. So, Nicole, you're the Programming Director at the Women's Center for Creative Work in Frogtown in L.A. Right. You want to tell us what the Women's Center has been up to? Uh,
2: yes. Um, the Women's Center has been up to a lot of things. Um, I've just had my. i been there for a year as of last August. And I think in the last year, even really in the last six months, we've started a, a bunch of new things. So, um, most recently, we started a press Coco Press, Co-conspirator Press. So we're publishing um, uh, women and non-binary writers and artists now. We have our first book coming out sometime in the spring. We just started an after school program for fourth uh, uh, girls in the neighborhood from like fourth to seventh grade. It's like a theater pro- a theater program where they're gonna like work on their own production that they'll produce at the end. So like right now they're kind of like writing and developing characters and that kind of thing um we received a grant at the end of last year for um what we're calling the actual people stock photo project so that's exactly what it sounds like yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. what it sounds like um cat you know we're casting um models of like all different skin tones but especially particularly dark skin models gender non-conforming people um people of all body sizes body of all ages um and, like, in you know some not and like the kind of moving away from the tip very typical like what you i'm sure you imagine when you think of stock photos and kind of having more like vibrant backgrounds more colorful settings more fun um mm-hmm. more realistic um yeah those are i think those are like the three sort of newest newest things that are happening well let me back up and ask oh, yeah. a question that yeah.
0: i should have asked oh,
2: sure. first <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> which is why don't you tell the listeners what like the women's it, center for creative
2: work is, is. yeah <laughs> Um, the Women's Center for Creative Work is a co-working space on the LA River in Frogtown. Um, we're a space for women and non-binary creatives with a really expansive definition of like who who is a creative, like what is creative work, like what is art, what is art making, what is an artist, who is an artist. Um, so Monday through Friday we're a co-working space and then three or four times a week we have programs um, that I'm coordinating, which is like anything from like a talk on uh, monogamy or colonialism, um, to like, nonviolent communication workshops, to like professional development for artists, to financial planning, like really all kinds of things that are for that audience. Um, we also have, um, we're in the second year now of our Artists in Residence programs. So we also have an artist in Residence every quarter. And there's programming, or there themed quarters every, th- every couple of months. Um, so the, the Artists in Residence have an, a small exhibition space and they also are doing programming. And we have a bunch of other sort of programs and initiatives that are also just sort of happening at the whim of the people, the seven of us who work there. Um, we're all we're all part-time. A lot of us have, like, creative practices outside of work. And there's just a lot of, like, sort of autonomy and freedom. It's a very, like, sort of collective space where we really make all the decisions collectively. It's very unlike working at any other nonprofit. Um, everything really is done collectively. Everything's super transparent. We try to be as non-hierarchical as possible. And so anytime anyone wants to do something, they're just kind of welcome to do it. And that's how... A lot of the projects have gotten started. Um, the press was, we have a design fellow this year who wanted to start a press and she started it. So we're doing that now. You know, someone was, our social media person is a photographer outside of work and she said she was tired of like the sort of annoy. she was, was really frustrated by the lack of sock photo imagery that reflected herself, the women of color who work there, queer folks who work there. And so she started taking her own sock photos and we applied for a grant and now we're working this whole big sock photo project. So like that's kind of how. It functions. It's kind of like working in art collective. I feel like a little mm-hmm. bit, and it feels definitely. I definitely feel like I've, I've incorporated it into like my own creative practice for sure.
0: And Sarah, you you mm-hmm. met Nicole there at the mm-hmm. Women's Center, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Nicole and I met um, last summer. I think when I was in development to present a theater piece that I created and direct called "I'm Bringing to You" in L.A. and that's a It is an adaptation of a published email correspondence between the late, great feminist author Kathy Acker and Mackenzie Wark, who's an Australian academic from 1995. They met in Sydney when Kathy was on tour there in the 90s and had a very brief, intense four-day love affair. And then Kathy flew all the way back to San Francisco. And it's their two weeks of email correspondence right after that happened, where they're, like, unpacking their gender identity and power and sex and their various queer and feminist and literary communities sort of on their relationship in this new email space. And also just having the experience of like trying to maintain a crush and a new relationship online for the first time, which in 95 was a new experience. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, develop- I created that piece. Uh, I adapted that piece from the published text, which is really long, um, and it, it, I invite a local ensemble of eight-ish queer, feminist, non-binary performers to read the correspondence and inters- intersperse it with true stories from their own lives that have to do with gender slippage and online love and all this stuff. So I was looking to connect with people in L.A. who might be interested in participating and was also you know, looking generally for support in producing that. So, so I reached out. And we talked. (laughs) (laughs) And discovered that we have a lot of shared interests. So, yeah. yeah.
2: I'm swooning at just even just just thinking about uh, the source text for that work. Yeah.
3: (laughs) I mean, I still I've been working. I have been working on this show in various forms and presenting it and re-presenting it and talking about it for like almost three years now. And I still... I still swoon when I pick it up and read it. <laughs> it's like it's like my one true love. Yeah. is how it feels. So. I understand that. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and you're going to tour it around, right?
3: Yeah. Well, I have um, this past year. I did it in I did it in L.A. as part of the L.A.X. Festival, um, produced by Los Angeles Performance Practice in October. And then in November, I got to take it up to San Francisco to um, the Wattis Institute, which is a contemporary art museum in San Francisco, and they um, they were doing a year long focus on the author Dodie Bellamy, who is sort of like one of Kathy's contemporaries, and also whose work really uh, circles around like experimental feminist form and the internet and sexuality and all this stuff in a similar realm as the project so
1: and the epistolary form as well mm-hmm. which yeah that a lot yeah. yeah
3: um yeah so they presented i'm very into sort of as part of this year-long season on dotie's work sort of in conversation with her work which was really exciting yeah and it's a mix of trained actors and non performers which is also you know something that I'm interested in in my work is um is standing in the sort of boundary between conventional theater practices and um and something participatory or something that feels just more like a talk or a party and like really kind of like standing on that line and and drawing drawing some attention there putting a light on that as a as a super queer space you know it's just liminal it's another it's another way of talking about liminal space which is always what we <laughs> come back to so yeah
1: and you've worked as a theater director and on other projects mm-hmm. yeah this isn't your first rodeo as they say
3: right? <laughs> no uh-huh. no I kind of I come from a pretty straightforward theater background I I I was an actor for a long time through my youth and early education and then um actually switched to directing after I took my first women's studies class in undergrad and was like I have to be in charge um and and that's what I've been doing (laughs) since then um but yeah I also direct new plays and work in and you know adaptations of classic plays that you know I've done like the ancient Greeks and that kind of stuff um and then also sort of as I got older um started getting my interest in feminist theory and queer theory and activism led me down led me into this sort of like queer performance and activist performance art and social practice realm and um yeah and then I kind of went to grad school to figure out how to mush all those things together and that's what I've been doing yeah
2: cool yeah (laughs) (laughs) very impressive (laughs) oh I also saw it. Did you, did you, you directed the, the show that um, Enzo was also in. Like, mm-hmm. I was, like, I also came to that. I don't know if I told you that mm-hmm. I also was there. Oh, but, no. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that you also saw that. What is this show? I forgot what
3: it was called. It's called Vendetta Chrome, right. and it's a play written by Sylvan Oswald, who is another amazing L.A. Uh, queer theater artist. He's a trans playwright um, who I actually, we were in New York at the same time, like years ago, and I saw like a lot of his early work then, and then and he moved out here to work at UCLA. So we got to work together this year. Um, Yeah, so that's a play that is actually, he wrote for the first time, I think, a decade ago. So it's sort of interesting coming back to it, not sort of, you know, a contemporary play, but not really a new play. Um, And uh, that is a play that takes place in a Victorian girls' school in Chicago and follows a group of teenage girls who are secretly uh, secretly host their own basketball tournaments and are being taught some really uh, really constricting restrictive movement that is supposed to control their performance and emotions as women in the world um and they sort of use this power that they find playing basketball with each other to unleash unleash some pretty wild crazy uh violence (laughs) (laughs) in a very sort of like ancient greek kind of feeling so yeah it's a great play and providenza you mentioned was in i'm very into you and also in that who's um, an incredible non binary LA based actor. Yeah. Everybody should hire them. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> it was very funny and they were really great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I also wanted to ask about the, there was a project you did at Automata, which uh-huh. is a space like I, I uh, yeah. kind of know. Yeah, yeah. Janie and Susan. Yeah. 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 Well, tell us about that project. Yeah, a little bit, at least. Yeah,
3: Yeah. so this is a new project that I I don't really know what it is yet, but it's this sort of new line of inquiry that I am following and hoping to develop a new piece around. Um, So it is a participatory performance, so it's really like me hosting a space where the audience comes in and moves through a series of actions that I lead them through. Um, And it's about consent and gray areas of consent and, you know, attempting to enter into that cultural conversation and ask questions about how language serves and also limits us in those spaces when we rely on it to, to keep our, keep, keep ourselves safe from one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, the last time we saw each other was at you
2: were t- kind of like hosting an open forum, a critical forum, I guess they call mm-hmm. it, at Pam about mm-hmm. that about yeah. that work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I came in sort of towards the end, so I'm am curious. Like one thing we did talk about, we wanted to get into was mm-hmm. like talking about like how that was for you. Yeah, I'm curious. can I ask like questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay.
3: it, the whole thing is really intense entering into yeah let's talk about consent um entering into that work is really vulnerable and really dangerous and it's also I mean I don't know i I made it like a thousand times harder for myself too because I decided I'm a theater artist and I'm used to working with a crew of like 20 or 30 or 50 or 60 other people who I'm collaborating with even when it's you know the piece is my is is my baby and I'm the leader of it Um, But this is a situation where I really wanted to work on my own as a solo artist and create this participatory experience where I'm, you know, hosting something for the audience, which um, for such personal, vulnerable, dangerous kind of, you know, hot button subject matter is um, a lot to take on. And I was really dealing with it that night at the Critical Forum for sure. Mm Um, Yeah, you were dealing with, like, sort of everyone's sort of baggage and expectations around, like, what even even
2: consent means. Yeah. And also who you were – I thought it was interesting who you were talking about was – Yeah. There were a lot of sort of assumptions made about, like, I I don't know, just the word heteronormative was sort of introduced – It was thrown around a Mm -hmm. lot. And Mm -hmm. I was surprised by that. Yeah.
3: Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm – used to people making assumptions Mm -hmm. in many directions about like my sexuality and gender identity because i don't really line up to what people you know think Yeah. yeah um so you know i uh i identify as genderqueer some days i Feel more solid in the cis woman presentation that that most people assume around me, and mm-hmm. some days I feel like I'm in a much more fluid space. Mm-hmm. And, Same, yeah. And that's something that you know shows up in my own sex life all the time, um, as one might imagine. And um, also, I mean, I can say this differently if you guys want, but I look like a dyke, <laughs> 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 and I really loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, do i need to say that differently no, okay no. great <laughs> I'd say,
0: I'd say whatever you want okay. we, we are not right. a popular enough program <laughs> for, okay. for anyone
2: to care yeah i also identify as a dyke but also <laughs> <laughs> when you said that i was like what, what are you <laughs> yeah. oh you
0: guys need to yeah. talk how convenient <laughs> here you are
3: oh mm. uh, yeah so I think like that particular night I was um I did this residency around this piece at Automata and I presented a work in progress and got a lot of very mixed feedback, including some people who felt like it was not a safe experience for them. All things, which is you know something that is really challenging with any participatory work, not to mention participatory work that's about sex and consent. So I was like taking many steps back and processing that, and um, trying to figure out how I want to change my practice moving forward in response to that. And so the critical forum air quotes that I presented to the group of people gathered was literally, you know, 90% of it was literally just a list of questions that I have for myself around this work. Um, Because at that moment, that was like what I that's what it was for me. I was like drowning in questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And a lot of those questions were framed around like my own experiences. So when people are looking at me and like assuming cis woman, and then they're hearing me ask a lot of questions that have to do with, like, sexual relationships with men, then they assume that I am, like, a turfy white feminist, Mm -hmm. (laughs) straight woman. Um, And, uh, yeah, and I found with this work, um, I found with this work frequently that people, um, more so than any other content that I have delved into in my own work before, people have a really hard time receiving perspectives or points of view that is not like exactly in line with their own personal experience yeah, yeah um and I think that's you know in part probably the nature of talking about sex and violence so close together um because it's so dangerous um yeah so there were a lot of assumptions being thrown around mm. the night.
0: You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find The People anywhere where you find your podcasts. Uh, We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press, so you can go to insertblancpress.net, click on The People at the top of the page, or uh, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or any of that stuff. You can also find
1: us on Instagram by uh, finding us at the underscore people underscore radio. That's the people radio on Instagram.
0: Yeah, mash down on those likes
1: yeah absolutely and now back to our conversation with sarah lyons and nicole kelly
3: so um tell me about your writing practice and how intimacy and power find their way into that um hmm. i would say that my writing i mean these days my writing practice
2: mostly gets funneled into like audio work i mm-hmm. mean i think both my writing practice and my I spent the last two years, like, exploring performance and have decided that I don't really like doing things in front of live <laughs> audiences. And so I really think of, like, radio and, like, uh, that space as, like, a performance space. Um, but even, like, I mean, years ago when I was, like, more writing, like, literary fiction, my a lot of my writing was, like, very preoccupied with sex and with power. With regard, I mean, I wrote a lot about sort of what it's like to be – I wrote a lot about, like, women of color who, like, were, you know um, – who we we're, were trying to fuck really like in very in like different parts of the world like in a lot of my stories most of my fiction was like not set in the U.S. and so was a lot of it was about sort of power dynamics have to do with like be, like American privilege um having to do with gender having to do with like with racialized sort of power dynamics um and how that sort of pertains to sex um so I guess I don't know like I mean we were talking before I was thinking about One of my favorite, one of my own favorite short stories is American Girls Are Easy, which is about, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's about a pair of, like, young, like, early 20s something women in Barcelona, a black woman and a white woman, um, and they both are kind of informed by sort of, like, I would call, like, a third wave, like, sex-positive feminism, where it's just, like, you know, and, like, kind of, like, you you can sort of, it's implicit, I think, that they sort of were, they came of age sexually, maybe, like, informed by sex in the city or, like, that kind of thing, you know, um, but have like really divergent experiences with regards to sort of like trying to fuck in Barcelona. Um, one of them sort of has, I think just gets to enjoy sort of the privileges of her Americanness and her like Amer- her white American femininity and the other one, the black woman. I think just like experiences a sort of a like, lot of like fetishization and like having to navigate like mm. wanting to have sex, wanting, and it's, to a certain extent like wanting to be objectified maybe. Um, mm. But it's like there's certain moments where like that any sense of power she might feel from like pursuing that is undermined by sort of like the racial fetishization that she experiences, mm. as an example. Um, but like right now, I'm really, I've been really, inter- I've become really interested in shame. Mm. Recently, um, I took this class at the Women's Center, um, a nonviolent communication workshop. But in one of the works, so which has to do, I think, with a lot of sort of like decolonizing practices, just put it broadly. But in one of the classes we did a, work, a workshop on, like, rage and shame, as and so I started thinking a lot about, like, shame and how that pertains to, like, sort of, like, my – some sort of, like, racialized memories I have of growing up in the South. But that kind of led me down a path of thinking about, like, sexual shame and, like, sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that class also had to do with – was, like, a, a lot of it was about thinking about um, – or, like, I started to think about, like, s- my body in a way that I really had not before. Um, and had, in the course of that, that class, like, had a revelation, I think, of – I had a revelation. I was talking to a friend about kind of like Me Too and about like consent and about orgasms, just like all, really all kinds of things having to do with sex um, and power. And it was definitely where she was saying things that I think I've definitely heard before. Um, but suddenly in that moment, in the cor- in the course of doing that work, I was like, I feel like I understand what it means to have like your body be colonized. Mm-hmm. And also in the inverse, like to have your body be decolonized, like what that actually feels like, what it actually feels like to have agency and exercise that. What does that actually feel like? I mean, I think, I think I just had this moment where I was like, oh, I feel like I understand that like in all the, throughout all of my, I mean, to, f- to be frank, like many sexual experiences because I think I've, also, I've, also, I've just been interested in sex and I was, like, I was writing about that. I was having a lot of sex that I could write about it. You know, like I feel like I do learn like very, a lot of my work is like very, it does become like very meta, like anything that I'm talking about in my writing or like on Bitch Face or whatever are things I'm also like doing in my real life and trying to figure out like having like the sort of theory meet the praxis is always like really important to me. Um, and so I think it was par- the revelation was more just like sort of like, oh, I realized I, I kind of realized how I've been operating where like my body did not feel like my own, didn't feel like it belonged to me and like kind of how that informed how I interacted in a sexual space. Um, and that's also like, inc- it is incredibly racialized, um, the, the extent to which I don't feel like it belongs to me and the way, the ways that things get projected onto like my specific body, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so then I think now it's a sort of thinking about thinking more deeply about like what how that actually is like functioning like in my personal life Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and as that came up at the forum as well like it's like not just I often think about things that aren't sexual at all like I think like working at the women's center I experience a lot of like non-consensual like people just try to hug me all the time for example (laughs) you know it's a little thing but I think like you really see like these little ways in which like we don't like in which like agency and autonomy like isn't really accessible to you um Mm -hmm. so I'm kind of just think trying to think through those things with this sort of new project and like going like thinking a lot about kink and like going to like I've been to, like, Dungeon East a few times, you Mm -hmm. know, just, I think, like, the kink community has a lot, has a lot to teach us about, you know, I'm sure you've thought about that, like, um, about consent and about, like, I heard someone recently talking about how, like, what the kink community can teach the vanilla people is that, like, sex is, like, dangerous and complicated and, like, needs to be discussed and, like, should be talked about a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. and I was, like, that's very, again, like, very obvious, but I think for the it like really cl- it really clicked for the first time where I was like, yeah, that is true. I'm going to like explore that path, you know? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I also have that experience that you're describing in the King community and sort of um, observing how that community, I've sort of like dipped my toe in there and mm-hmm. then Same. dipped it out and sort of been in it for, you know, my whole adult life. <clears throat> um, and I think I've also had that experience in um, in polyamorous and non-monogamous communities because it, you know, uh, around sex, but also around relationship more broadly that forces you to, you know, that's really my favorite thing about it actually. And what drew me to it in the first place is because it is, you know, by and for people who are really committed to not taking any, any relationship structure for granted and mm-hmm. really taking agency and ownership over the opportunity to build a relationship with each person right, yeah. unique to that connection. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and it, I mean it's very exciting to be in that space and it's also very exhausting. Like there are moments where that feels like added labor that I get, you know, <laughs> that yeah. I am have to do in order to um, find something that works for me.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it, I feel the same way. It is it is added labor. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I became interested in like non monogamy after following like a six a six year extremely heteronormative, very cishet relationship. Like, mm-hmm. I can't I like feel like I was a different person when I was in that relationship. I like really didn't identify as queer at the time. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I think following that, I was just like, I want to do everything really different. I like really just wanted to queer my whole life, really. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of it, um, but recently when I was preparing, I recently I, a couple, I guess the week of Val- the day before Valentine's, day, I hosted this talk at the Women's Center um, on the kind of relationship between. I was trying to connect like what I've learned via ethical non-monogamy, like via sort of queering my romantic life in that way. Mm-hmm. I thought like that's controversial to say. To, 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 to <laughs> I think it's controversial to, to refer to being polyamorous or non-monogamous as queer. Like I think that's
3: like a that's a whole other. I don't want to get into. That. <laughs> I mean I want to get you, it. I think do, that it, I think that it's queer. I think that it is so queer. I, I mean that was like to for me personally that was the the origin point of my queer identity was was entering into non monogamy and being like, "Oh, like wait, I can like live in the body that I'm living in and have sex with someone who identifies as a cis man and it is not straight sex." Like, I don't feel identified – I don't feel, like, what I'm having is straight sex. And it took me a long time to, to like, put the pieces together and realize, like, oh, actually, that is, like, yeah. being genderqueer. Um, but, I yeah. I I feel – this is, like, one of the reasons I also was really interested to talk to you I feel
2: like – I was, like, we have – we seem to have these – sort of these things in common. I mm-hmm. don't really know anyone else who I feel like has – operates in this dynamic. I would say for me also, like, those two things are – they're really – I can't separate the two. I can't separate like the evolution of my my queerness, like my conception of my own gender. Mm-hmm. They just they were happening concurrently to like my interest in non-monogamy, So like they are clearly linked, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but I don't know if like the relationship structure its I don't know if it's like the structure itself is inherently queer, but whatever, it's irrelevant. Um I was gonna say I feel like it's with regards to like, sort of like not ethno- ethical nominal like what it means about queerness, I think like the labor that you're describing, at least for me ways kind of like constantly having to question uh, sort of status quo power dynamic, so it's like I'm con- you're constantly sort of investigating, thinking about like heteronormativity and how that's functioning in you- in yourself and your in your relationship. Mm-hmm. You're constantly, th- I mean, for me, I'm also thinking about because um, I also date a lot of people who I I'm also I've been in a lot of interracial relationships, so like mm-hmm. that, that's also like a thing I'm constantly thinking about. So I agree. so I guess oh, I also was gonna say I guess um, when I was preparing for that talk at the Women's Center, like I really I went like down like just like a weird. I went to like a lot, I went to several different dark places where I think like at one point I was just, I, at one point I was like, I don't even know like what love is. Like, why does any, I don't know why is anyone in a relationship? Why am I in a relationship? Like, I just don't understand like what I'm even, what I'm even asking about. And then I also at one point was just kind of like, I just feel like, what, what is the point of this? Like, fuck mm-hmm. all of this. I just feel like maybe, maybe I'll just get married and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. just like move to the Midwest like I just like don't know like why am I even thinking about these things it just seems like so much work and no one else gives a fuck like that's what I thought but that's not true a lot of people do a lot of people I think it turns out a lot of people like are really interested in kind of yeah. like fucking with their relationships and like how they're working
3: um oh, you're you are you're speaking my soul you're speaking my soul right now and I, I mean I feel like this is there is a physical and mental experience that Is resonating with me and what you're describing of like how do you traverse this dialectic of like letting go into having sex Mm. which requires living in your body and like that is the pleasure of it and this act of constantly questioning, which like can be a pleasure at times and also can be a burden. Right, because um, you need to yeah, not be in that thought process. No? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that question and that sort of like impossible loop is a lot of that that is what drew me to wanting to make a piece about consent because I feel right. like it's kind of the same thing of like how can I ever how can I ever let go enough if I don't feel safe? And then mm-hmm. is like if I'm using I'm using this like intellectual tool of language. Mm-hmm to try and find a safe place to do this thing that we want to (laughs) do um uh how can it's like I can't be in two places at once
2: yeah I think that's like why I've gotten to this place where I feel like I I'm often like in the in my head you know Mm -hmm. like I think I'm really good at like intellectualizing how I feel and like articulating how I feel on that level and that part of like that decolonizing work that I'm talking about is about like sort of thinking, letting go of that and thinking more about like the body. It's a sort of like it's like a lot of the questions you're are being asked are like, OK, you have that thought you've articulated it of Like, where does it live in your body? And I realized I couldn't say a lot of the time, you mm-hmm. know, that was part of how I realized that the disconnect existed. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm really trying to explore that and just sort of like it is. Yeah, it's like every, for all the reasons that you just said. Um, yeah. And I think also a lot of it's like more
3: intuitive, you know. Like at a certain point, you have to sort of let go of like the logos. And I know, but sometimes you know. I'm afraid of my intuition because sometimes my intuition can get really heteronormative, and I feel like it's been directed mm. by the world around me, or you know. And then I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I wonder. If- hmm, that's interesting. That's a secret that I just told the radio. No, I- <laughs> <laughs>
2: We're keeping
3: it. <laughs> the radio <in>. knows now. <laughs> <laughs> keeping it. <laughs> is it
2: your intuition? Is your intuition heteronormative? I feel like it's not. You intuitively know that you're ge- like ge-
3: your gender fair identity, for example. That's like your intuition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you're right. I'm trying to think.
0: It's not the structures that you were raised in and are subject to despite your best efforts, maybe.
3: Well, I mean, I think that's the question is for me with myself is like, when, when is it a result of, you know, all these external forces that have created my subjectivity in this moment? And when is it some, you know, essential gut feeling? Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I start talking about that. And I'm like, but wait a second, I like, my brain was developed on feminist theory, I don't believe anything is essential, you know, it's Mm -hmm. all socially constructed. And then Mm -hmm. if that's true, then like, Wow, the world is a really depressing place. Well, yeah, (laughs) it (laughs) does. Sure. Just can't give you any
2: insights into that because I, I feel like Mm -hmm. in some of my like investigations into it, like I'm, I'm really interested in like, I I can't say I'm really interested, but I've definitely become (laughs) interested in like race play, for example. Interesting. Which I feel like gets into like a weird gray area of kind of like what is like your. Intuitive, what are you intuitively drawn to mm-hmm. and attracted to? And like, yeah. what is just like your fucked up
3: programming? Yeah. Know? Well, when it comes to kink, I'm like 99% of what I'm interested in is uh, doming and like beating men up. <laughs> so psychoanalyze that. Wow. <laughs> we're we like 100% on the same wavelength. <laughs> wow. But I feel like often <laughs> the like kink narrative that yeah. I hear more often around questions like this is more, you know, like, Race play like something you're talking about where it's like a black woman who like wants to be dominated by a white man and then King gives her that space to do that, mm-hmm. you know, or s- something similar with gender. Mm-hmm. Whereas for me, it's been like this is a space where like I can do, I can, you know, I can act on a lot of anger that I have, yeah, that I've held onto for um much of my life and turn that into pleasure. Um, That's true for me as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more just like I'm fascinated by like. The, like I don't know yeah the master slave play
3: is fascinating to me but I don't really understand it um how have you engaged with master slave play I ha- no I haven't no well, you haven't <laughs> no okay, I'm just like just sort been... of yeah I feel and like for me I'm, I'm I'm like
2: thinking about I'm for this like shame audio project I'm th- there's like a performance I'm thinking about that it's kind of like I've, in my mind, I've been calling it like reparations doming. Nice,
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. nice. <laughs> do
2: I don't know exactly what it is yet, but it has, yeah, it has something to do with me working out my relationship to white men, <laughs> which is complicated and fraught. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and informed by like financial doming, which is, is a thing now. But okay. the
0: structure of 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 kink communities like that that provides that critical space, right? To to do something that's not you're not totally sure about but it it creates a critical dialogue about these things that you're not positive about right that's it can. that's a great thing it can thing about do that today, yeah, exactly, right? exactly. Right. It, ideally, it, yeah. ideally that's what it's
3: for yeah the, right? i mean the danger of uh, of any new kink space and also i think like polyamorous or non-monogamous community is that um, it can and often does do exactly what you're describing and then it also can just be a place where people who are already in power can wield that power with impunity
0: (laughs) you're listening to the people on k chung sixteen thirty a.m i'm ben White,
1: and i'm matthew timmons you can find us on k chung every third sunday at 3 p.m you can also find us at insertblankpress.net by clicking on the people at the top of the page and you can find us anywhere you find podcasts
0: and uh most recently you can find us on instagram at the underscore people underscore radio the people radio the people radio so go there follow us like some stuff
1: and now back to our conversation with Nicole Kelly and Sarah Lyons
0: whenever you're ready okay
3: this is my question for you is sex is power Mm -hmm. so where does consent or even sex begin and end if sex is power and therefore you know colonialism is in the bed with you and racism is in the bed with you and sexism is in the bed with you and then when you're not in bed or wherever you fuck which may or may not be in a bed um (laughs) when it how is how does sex stay with us in all of those other ways that you know those power structures are wielded and where's the delineation where's the moment when i get to step out of all of my subjectivities and just enjoy having a body that's, that's the question that's yeah. underneath all of that.
2: That's a great question. I also have that question constantly. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess I think like, uh, it's like part of me like doesn't want to talk about like my personal, my personal life, mm-hmm. my own sex life. But I do think that like in an ideal situation, like I think like, for well, for me, for example, this feels relevant. Like my, um, my current like understanding of my own gender, I think, like emerged from I was I was gonna say like my sexual practice. But it does, <laughs> I just feel like it does feel like a practice. <laughs> like, it, oh is, God. it is a practice because <laughs> don't, don't take the
0: joy out of it.
3: <laughs> no, but no, oh but, God, but it is joy. But It is,
2: joyful. <laughs> yeah. to, it is jo- to me, like to think to analyze I love to process my relationship. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. Like a true dyke. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so like it, it's not it isn't it doesn't like take that away from it for me but I do think like if you're thinking about these questions you're thinking about the extent to which you're bringing heteronormativity white supremacy capitalism (laughs) gender dynamics into the bedroom which you definitely are it is a kind of practice that you have to sort of think about consciously yeah
3: it is Um,
2: and so I think so I was gonna say like I think like I've learned to understand my gender through sex recently and I I kind of thought that was weird for a while but recently Mm -hmm. I've read some things that made me me think that that's like valid way to like learn that Yeah. so I know that there are moments when those when I'm in that space where it feels like it's not hierarchical and those things aren't coming into play, but it's a constant like shift back and forth. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's constant. You know, like everyone's unlearning things every moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so many things are so automatic, and so that also brings up like kind of like when so many things are automatic, like when I do and don't feel agency. <sighs>
3: <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> like, One thing I've been thinking about recently is those moments when I don't feel agency. M- in a sexual scenario it's um there's a part of me that wants to say like oh you know I have to fight the way that I've been socialized Mm -hmm. and speak up for myself Mm -hmm. but there's another part of me that wants to like handle that problem differently because I also think that like we become what we've been socialized and like Mm -hmm. I also feel like a tenderness around the um the you know my own repression (laughs) of my, you know, my, of like my own voice. Right. And and And, like the journey of coming out of that. Right. Say more about the, a tender,
2: uh, the tenderness and you mean you have compassion for yourself as far as like those things that have been so. Yeah.
3: I mean, it's compassion for myself, but it's also less, it's also more immediate than that. In that, Mm. like, that's who I am because I have been socialized that way. And I don't want to, um, I don't want to develop this dual relationship where it's like there is a better me on the other side of dealing with these issues do you know what I mean
2: I guess but I think that because I mean I don't I definitely feel like I don't know if I put think of it as a better me but I I don't think that it's I don't think that's who I am yeah I don't think that things I've internalized are who I am like I think part of my I hate to like, I don't want to, th- I feel like the word decolonize is getting thrown around a lot, but I, I really mean, I do really mean like, I feel like I have a relationship to that word for the first time recently. Like I feel like I've known of that concept and recently I was like, oh, I understand what that means. Mm-hmm. And for me, like that process of decolonization means like there is a, there is like a more authentic, inherent self that I can sometimes, and moments I can recognize, see, tap into, and experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I wouldn't say it's a better self, just like a truer self um that gets to like exist when all these other things are peeled away and i see glimpses of it Mm -hmm. and so i feel like for me like part of my i have many like lifelong projects a part of those projects has now become like that process of like trying to see more of those moments or more of that version of myself that is like more that feels more if to me feels more true and authentic you know um yeah so
1: how does that come through in your like the the Shame Project or the mm-hmm. or or the podcast you do Bitchface? Like, yeah. is that something that you're working you're working with?
2: For sure, the Shame Project is really about that. I think the Shame Project is really about. I mean, it comes up in Bitchface also, but I think and the Shame Project is is like an audio project for that will be on Bitchface. But um, it's like more it's more of my personal work, and I think it has a lot to do with unlearning learning, has a lot to do with, you know, like I said, it's, like I said, it started with like kind of like thinking about like racialized shame, like growing up in Georgia and like kind of being the only black girl and like all of my classes and having like really, really, really fucked up. And like now I'm like, now that I'm an adult, I'm like very shocked at the things that my younger self was subjected to. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of it's about that. A lot of it's about seeing like, a lot of it's about recognizing like who I was kind of like whatever inherent self And I do think there is some, some version of an inherent self that then was like sent to school, you know? (laughs) And then had to like deal with like racist teachers, had to deal with like a racist curriculum, you know? Mm -hmm. Had to do with like a a sexist curriculum, had to do with like, had to just, I'm thinking like a lot of the memories that come from the shame, that workshop I mentioned was about shame. A lot of, all these, this became a project because after that class, I just like wrote, I went home and I wrote like 5,000 words about shame, about like, and all the memories were related to like a very particular moment of my life living in Georgia. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that moment, which is like, I started school there. So it was like first to second grade and it's not a coincidence. I feel like there's like a self that existed before I like went into the world that I think I really, I feel really connected to that I think is like still who I am. But like, I'm trying to like get back to like, who was I before I was, I started to be shaped by all these sort of like oppressive power structures.
1: So Mm. how, I mean, how is that? Because you're a writer, that's Uh one of your. And even if it's like writing things on paper or versus producing radio, it sounds like it's 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 writing. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how is that coming into that practice?
2: Honestly, for me, I think that the answer is no. I feel like this is my first project that gets at that because, I mean, like you mentioned, sort of like my white drag, like the, the sort of like audio essay that I produce about like my experiences in graduate school and like kind of like the ways in which I was like trained the w- and bef- also preceding graduate school. I mean, I've been wanting to be a I've thought of myself as a writer since I was like 10 years old. And I was like very encouraged to do that. I've, I've had a, a lot of like literary training. Um, and so even as an undergraduate, I was I went to like the school I went to so I could take writing classes. So I've been like trained for a long time to be a writer. But obviously what that means is I've been trained for a very long time to write for the white gays, um, to conceive to conceptualize myself in a very particular way to tell stories, uh, ra- even racialized stories that were like all they were always really for like a white audience and a white reader and a white listener. And I think writing white drag was like maybe the f- one of the first times that I really was processing that. Um, after I grad school, I didn't I didn't write for three years. Like I really just spent three years kind of like unlearning everything I had learned in grad school. And then for a while I was like, I don't even want to be a writer. Like I just don't even like want to write anymore, which is still true. I'm not interested in like the literary world at all. Um, I think I'm. Inter- I think I became interested in that three year period when I wasn't writing. My the person I now think of called my art wife approached me about hosting this podcast, and I was like, that seems like a fun lark to do when I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> sure. And now I found that it, like I love the podcast space to make work in because you can just say whatever you want, you can do whatever you want, and there's no gatekeepers. We just publish it to iTunes, it's done. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's giving me a space to like really get into like thinking about these things, but I think so. I think white drag might be the beginning of this process, and then the shame project is really the first time that I'm like really thinking about. But like, no wait, like who actually am I though? When I'm who would I be? What kind of person would I be if like white supremacy weren't like a huge part of my life? <laughs> you know, it's like trying to imagine that. We've done like a lot. We do a lot of imaginative, imaginative like radical work on bitchface. face. Like a lot of it, it's like it is like explicitly anti-oppressive, and a lot of that is imagination sort of like imagining like imagine yourself in this in this context imagine yourself if you didn't have to deal with the capitals imagine yourself if like white supremacy weren't a thing imagine what we might how we might relate to each other in the future like those are all things that we're dealing with um but again like what reason like you saying I talk, i'm referring to the sort of like recent epiphany i've had about like decolonizing it's very recent like it's really I didn't get it i didn't i think intellectually like we were saying before intellectually i did know i was able to like talk about these things i could have said all these same things to you but now i'm like i get it and i don't know if i can really i don't know if i can't explain that like what that feels like yeah. it's just i can i can feel that shift in myself um it's intuitive so it's hard to talk about i think you know it's so, like really know what it means to you have been shaped by these things and to know that like this is not who i would have been otherwise does that,
3: does that answer your question? Yeah, perfectly. Hell yeah! yeah. Cool. Hell yeah. yeah! Okay. I think, um, in terms of artistic practice, I just love hearing you talk about all of this because, um, for me, when I think about creating theater mm. and performance, so much of that, you know, my my like core, my core mission statement as an artist, mm. in- always includes, you know. Uh, activating the power of a theatrical space where i get to kind of like hijack people's attention spans, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and tell them where to look and what to listen to. Yeah. hijack that space um towards, you know, the opportunity to imagine and create a world where our, you know, power structures are turned upside down and we get, you know, yeah. and it, like this core base experience that i had like the first time i did some like solo feminist performance art where i was like, "Oh, holy shit." I get to decide what's important, um, mm-hmm. and also realizing how rare that experience is. Mm-hmm. So I love hearing you talk about this, you know, in another form because in theater it's very physical. It's like literally, like we all come into a space, we look in, you know, a certain direction. Light tells us where to look, mm-hmm. um, and we can, and we have we you know have these walls around us, and we can we can control meaning for just a moment inside yeah. of that space. Yeah. So how do you think about that creating that kind of space with your work as like a writer and in an audio space where it's like there are no literal walls
2: yeah oddly enough I mean I didn't feel that sense of power when I was writing when I was like a literary writer and I do everything you just said is how I feel about bitchface. Like I do feel like it's a similar thing where I mean I do also think this is interesting like it does play into kind of these questions of consent but like I do feel like someone has consented to, has, has agreed to like listen to this thing I'm gonna like got, I'm gonna take you on a journey and there's so many th- more things that can like be brought into that experience and I think I ever felt like on the page so to speak um but it feels the same way I think I think of myself as like a propagandist almost where I'm like I and I also like I am a writer at, the, at, at my core and so I think a lot about narrative and I think like what bitchface primarily wants to do is like present like alternative narratives mm-hmm. um for consideration really you know just like Here's another way to sort of like live your life, or here's another way to think about this thing, or here's like some history you haven't an alternative. I I hate calling you alternative history, but like an alternative to the mainstream history that like we're used to, like you know, all of those things are part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I love, I really just love, unlike my fiction, which I don't, I really don't know what my fiction was doing. Was it for entertainment? Like, was it ornamental? I really don't know. Mm You know, like I really used to love writing fiction, but I, what I love about Bitchface is that I I know that people hear it, hear the conversations we're having, hear the things we're doing in our real life, and then they like they make decisions in their actual lives. They change their lives, you know, not change their whole lives, but they they some aspect of their life people have told me that I know that that's the case, and that's also been true for me. You know, mm-hmm. so it just feels so much more valuable and important and immediate um, than any other form I ever worked in I think it's like well I'm just like leaning more into it Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm. like you were you were talking about making discoveries about your own gender identity through sex and I think that that has also happened for me Mm. 100% and I've also made other discoveries about myself and my relationship to power like for instance by discovering I like to beat men up yeah (laughs) like huh what's that about (laughs) um uh, I'm not going to send this to my mother. Okay.
0: Um. <laughs> she's said, you know, she's like our first subscriber, right? <laughs> yeah. She, she emails us every month. She, she
2: probably, told me to ask you.
3: She's an angel great, great. donor. Like she,
0: she bought these microphones.
3: So. Honestly, she'd probably be like, ugh, typical. So whatever. <laughs> um,. But yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about like, okay, how do I take those discoveries that I make in that kind of space and bring it into a mm. non-erotic space yeah. in life? Um, and I and it's hard because it is, you know, uh, the erotic space is like so primal and immediate. And uh, I mean, the word primal is complicated. But I don't have a better one right now. So is the word erotic, which I'm obsessed oh, with. Oh, interesting. I oh, I want to hear all about another 45 minutes. Uh, that's important. <laughs> after microphones (laughs) are off um yeah but thinking about how I can okay so then what is that you know what does that kind of impulse look like in a non-erotic space um because if I actually start beating men up on the street then that's not gonna that's not gonna make it actually won't make me feel good to do it that way so either you know so um at least I don't think so so um, so it. that yeah so that's something that I've been thinking about is like how to translate that information and what that means. And also in terms of gender because I, because you know a lot of my discoveries about my own gender identity or the queerness of my own gender identity um, have come through like sexual desire. So mm-hmm. then it's like, okay, so then mm-hmm. what is how do I want to express that or how important is it to me to express that in a non-erotic, Space, you know, in my day-to-day life, so it's all just questions.
2: Yeah, I'm having the exact same process of like it started sex. It started in the sexual realm, mm-hmm. and now I feel like it. I'm glad, glad. I'm really glad. Like it has bled over into like uh, other spaces. Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. We just saw
0: Well, Nicole, Sarah, thank you so much. I know there's. <laughs> thank you. So we could go on for another show. 45. So minutes. many, guys, yeah. so yeah.
2: much.
3: But
0: thank you so much for joining us on the people.
3: Thank you for having us. Thanks for so having fun. us. So fun. So great.
1: You've been listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons.
0: And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find The People anywhere where you find podcasts, including at insertblankpress.net by clicking on The People at the top of the page. And on our new Instagram, the underscore people underscore radio. The People Radio. The People Radio. Our theme music, as always, is "Och
1: Fifth by Lewis Keller. And we're going to go out with a new single from T-Sips released on the compilation A Thousand Tones, Volume 2, from Elestial Sounds. A limited edition double cassette release of music made by non-male identifying humans. And the name of the track is... Even and or The...